Welcome to another special edition of Rankin Review. Uh, as you may have heard a lot in recent episodes of the podcast, I have been doing what I can to promote my motion picture, Book of Trespasses. I wrote the screenplay and I co-directed it, and me and my creative partners, Jared Berry and Jared Nickel, have been doing everything we can to get exposure to this movie. Uh, months ago, I did another episode on Book of Trespasses, which had an interview with me a couple of years ago when I thought the movie was almost finished. <laughs> Turns out we did a whole new sound pass on it, it got a THX mix, and we actually did a little bit of reshooting. So uh, I was a little bit naive in the previous episode talking about how good to go we were. Uh, what happens this episode is that in an effort to promote the film, we did a series of talks at Nine Mile Legacy. And uh, it's, a, it's a local brewing company and pub that uh, was very supportive of Book of Trespasses, so I wanted to give them a shout-out. And what we did was a series of talks to help promote the screening that happened in October, as well as just generally getting information about the movie and information about making micro-budget film. So uh, the whole series of lectures was sort of inspired by some research I did before I started the film. The truest bit of information or... or Hollywood lore or knowledge that I got about making film is that typically you're not making one movie. You're making three movies. There's the movie you write, the movie you shoot, and the movie you cut. And those are the three speeches we gave on three consecutive Tuesday nights at the Nine Mile. I covered the first speech on writing. Jared covered the second speech on shooting the film, and Gareth covered the third speech on editing the film. So this was all a series of talks that was sort of meant to sort of promote the movie and uh, just get some information out there about what we went through to get the film, and I thought I would throw it together into a nice podcast package for my listeners, and hopefully they'll find that interesting. So that's what we're up to this episode of Rankin Review. We'll be back to our normal shenanigans in two weeks. I hope you enjoy this. Thank you so much for supporting the podcast. Please send feedback to rankinreview at gmail.com. That's R-A-N-K-N-R-E-V-I-E-W at gmail.com. And please tell your friends about the podcast.
Okay, so what I would, thought I would start with is just some general tips for people who are interested in writing. And if you're interested in writing and you're in Saskatchewan, I think you have to have a certain degree of passion for it. Uh, I don't want to talk crap about it, but it, the last few years has become less and less supportive of the artistic community. So uh, if you're doing it, you're loving it, and I'm going to sort of go in from that perspective. These are some things that I have learned from doing this for a long time. I believe in doing drafts. I believe in more than one. One and done almost never works for me. Uh, famous filmmaker, Paul Thomas Anderson, who did Magnolia, said that he did it in one draft. And if you watch the movie, I think you can believe it. <laughs> so uh, I'm really old school. I believe in doing your first draft longhand. Spread out on a mattress, take your time, write it out longhand. You're going to have to then type it into the computer and thus force yourself into draft two, right? Amend as you go. Uh, I also say for that first draft, just write what's in your head. If it doesn't make sense, don't get fussy about the, the specific words or the structure of the sentence. So get the idea out in as pure and raw a form as possible because you're writing your first draft. That is the freedom and benefit of your first draft. This, all of this is sort of general. This applies both to, I think, film and theater. But uh, most of my experience has been theater, so I'm, I'm sort of starting there. Uh, another thing that I would discourage you is overly romanticizing the act of writing. There's a lot of people that really, you know, think they're channeling something. They, they write something really good, and it's just sort of flowing through them, you know? It, it was written out of them. And usually that sensation, which I do agree does happen, is the benefit of doing it for a long time, applying yourself, and getting to a place where you've got a good rhythm. It doesn't necessarily mean there's some spiritual muse behind you. And I sometimes think that romanticizing it takes away from the fact that writing like anything is work. It takes time and effort, and uh, it's not an easy thing to do. A lot of people say anybody can be an actor or anybody can be a comedian, and I don't think that's true. I think anybody can lie or anybody can tell a joke, but that doesn't mean that you're a good actor or a good comedian. It's it's discipline, and uh, that's a lot of times downplayed when it comes to writing. So I got a little cheat sheet of notes here, you guys. <laughs> um, things like themes, things like subtext, things that you want to thread into the narrative of films, the sort of very harsh sort of literary approach, all something that I believe happens after the first draft. I find a lot of these things kind of present themselves to the story. You write the story and there's a theme of, say, bullying, for instance, going to Book of Trespasses. Then you can sort of think, well, how can I push that theme? How can every character have an element that sort of helps nudge that? But I find going into it with these sort of tactics already in play kind of weighs down the story. The important thing for me always is getting that story out in its purest form and then using those things to help and to augment it as you go forward. So uh, it sounds, it, I don't want to say there's, no, there's nothing magical about art or, or you know, trying to dissuade people from trying that, but like, I think you can come at it at too literal, sort of uh, educated an approach. You can look at it like an English major, or you can look at it like, ah, oh, this is art, and whatever it is, it's pure and free and true. Neither of those points are going to get you there in my experience. It's sort of a gray area in between that we're looking for. Um, yeah, so that's just general writing for yourself, just, just general tips. 
Um, a lot of the times you're going to find yourself, or I was lucky to find myself in a position where you're going to be paid to write something specifically. You're going to be put into a box. There's some hard lessons learned here, and uh, I would like to share some with you. <laughs> uh, I worked for the Off-Broadway Dinner Theater, and we did sketch shows, comedy shows for various corporate events and charitable events. One big one was, of course, the Festival of Trees. And I did a, a sketch for the Festival of Trees, basically making fun of the idea of affluenza. <laughs> it's just this kid who's got way too much, has never been said no to in his life, and he's developed a charity for himself. And he's going to come out and he's going to say, my parents give me like $25,000 a month to live. And that just ain't enough, right? And it was this screed <laughs> about greed and about people who live in a place of wealth and security that has put blinders on them. And you can hear the crowd at Festival of Trees not laughing at it. Because we were basically talking about them and their kids. It was not deliberate. It wasn't something everybody laughed when we read the sketch. But you can watch that. Much worse than that, we did a sketch called New Management for one of our corporate gigs, which is sort of a funny exercise in sort of the different type of bosses that you get. You get the way too nice, the kind of false boss. You get the super strict, but he doesn't do any of the work boss. And uh, all through the form of the, the sketch, the company's getting a new boss every few minutes. Hilarious. Except for that company had just gone through a round of layoffs. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, there's obvious things. If you're, if you're asked to write a kid's movie, you maybe want to take out the, the, the sex and violence. You maybe want to be hard, like, softer on the, on the language. But that is something that I stumbled over a lot earlier. Or, or, or getting into an artistic fight with somebody who's paying you to write something. Be happy that they are paying you to write something, right? I, I get that inclination against the very artist thing. I need to have my my process put out there. I, I need people to know that I wrote this as my stamp, right? That's nice. But at the end of the day, if you're making a product for a specific group, you're doing it for cash, you end up hurting yourself. You end up becoming a difficult artist. And nobody wants that. So I would discourage it. Choose your battles. If you're the wrong person for the job, look at it as they hired the wrong person and you're going to do the best with this situation. <laughs> but I find digging in and saying, no, this is what I want to do, not going to get you anywhere. So, okay, uh, sorry, I'm, this is just a general note again about language and in, in a lot of plays and especially movies these days because of the popularity of like Quentin Tarantino or you know, uh, David Mamet and stuff. People like using the F word, people like swearing. One of the things that I would like uniformly, even before I've read your script, even know before what your script is about, and it's not because I'm impressed, it's just a thing that's a pet peeve. I call it fuck editing, pardon my language. But go through your script, look at all of the swears, cut them in half, or switch them with something else. A, I find that it deadens the power of it if you overuse it, and it's just a, a crutch people tend to lean on. Just because you use the F word in the sentence, if the F word is the only thing that makes that sentence powerful or makes that sentence funny, then you need to look harder. Something I've, I've come to believe in. And I, I, I do have a bit of a sailor mouth. Anybody who sees Book of Trespass, I mean, it's unrated, but it would get an R for its content. Uh, not, take the violence and the sex out of it. I think the language might almost get us there. This is an adult movie. But uh, no shame. 
But generally speaking, I think, and again, I'm not a prissy person, it's something that people should be careful of. G backs me up, he knows that I... <laughs> okay, writing for film versus writing for stage. Uh, though in both cases you are telling a story exclusively through dialogue, which is the trick in of itself, uh, they are two completely different animals. A lot of times people will say that they watch a movie and that kind of felt like a play. That's the polite term. Usually what they mean is that movie was incredibly slow. Your average scene in a play will go 5 to 15 minutes. Your average scene in a movie will be 2 to 3. So uh, it's a completely different animal. And yes, there are movies that do that. Yes, there are movies set in one location. Yes, you can do like a long static shot. There's great opportunities for, for drama and comedy in that. But not everybody's Quentin Tarantino. And a 10-minute scene of dialogue is typically death in movies. It's expected on the stage. It's death in movies. Strange but true. Um, so I would definitely start that. Um, in film, you have 100% control of perspective. Even if you don't know what all of the edits are going to be, if you have an important piece of information that you want out, you can zoom in on one person's face when they say this line, or you can see them take this piece of evidence out of their pocket. And you need to do it once, because it's film. On stage, people choose what they're going to look at, right? So, I don't know, maybe there's a, a character in the background, like the maid in the background is doing something funny and it's distracting you, right? You're looking at that. Sometimes you cover your bases with a, screen, or with a stage play that note will be hit two or three times and it won't feel like you're spoon feeding them. It just sort of feels like you're ensuring your plot points, right? It can be problematic, right? You have to be careful how you approach it. Um, don't do anything, generally they say three times that you can do once. Don't use five words when you can use three. That's generally a good writing note. Film needs to move. It, it has like a, 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 an engine that's running through it. For theater people, I find, tend to respect the room. People sort of expect that you're going to have a prolonged space of dialogue. You're going to have speeches. People are going to speechify. My theater background is the most evident in the script because we do have a few speeches. I think we've done great moves through montage and blending scenes, and we're going to get more into that when we talk about the editing of the film to help it make, make it feel not like a monologue. But that was a lot of what we were dealing with in the editing process. How do we make this feel like a movie and not like a play? And that was a problem within the script. Don't get me wrong, it's a brilliant script. But <laughs> it was a problem that we ended up having to sort of deal with in editing. Um, people will sit for a 10 minute piece of dialogue on stage. They won't in film. So we course corrected for that, I think, very well. All right. Low-budget film. <laughs> the more you know about production of film, obviously the better. I've, I've loved film forever, and I'm, I'm a special features guy, so I like sort of getting into the background of the film. As much as I don't believe in limiting yourself when you're writing, especially as I talked about earlier, the first draft, if you're going into something knowing if this is going to get made, it's going to have to be made for very little money. There are a few tactics to take and to not take, okay? Uh, I have learned that, like in my head, writing a book of trespasses, which about, let's say, two-thirds of it almost takes place outside, in my head, 
way easier to shoot outside, right? We need a campsite. We need forest. We're not going to have to like pay big money for some trees or a fire pit, right? There are other things <laughs> to consider. Uh, that means you've got to bring a generator up to the set. That means, you know, you're going to, especially at night, lighting is an incredible ordeal. Uh, a lot of things that seem, yeah, that'll be easy, are not. There's the obvious things, like if it's a micro-budget film, maybe have a foot chase instead of a car chase, right? That makes <laughs> sense. Um, or if you're going to do a creature feature or there's a, a frightening element, and I think that's another thing. I'm going to keep tooting our own horn for Book of Trespasses that we did, keeping uh, our, our major villains kind of in the shadow a lot. Uh, it feels counterintuitive, especially in this age of Transformers and hyper-produced things, but I firmly believe in both horror and comedy. Less is more a lot of the time. So keep your, keep your villain, keep your monster, keep your adversary as much in the shadows. Make them want it. So even if they only get a few seconds, good look at it in the film, it's been built up enough that they feel like they got their money's worth. Right? Uh, you look at a movie like Blair Witch Project, which was all built on, 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 on the energy of panic and fright. You never see anything but panic and fright in that movie. And it's going to be talked about forever. Whether you like it or hate it, 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 it made an impression. That's the approach. I think you are forced to take a psychological approach to low-budget filmmaking. You're not Michael Bay. You're not Steven Spielberg. you got to know that you're in, right? Uh, not to say you can't pull ambitious things out of the low budget. You just have to know what weight you're fighting in. Minimize the cast. <laughs> uh, less than eight speaking parts if you can do it. It's a great thing about doing film that you, as a playwright you kind of feel obligated to give every character something to do because theater is a completely different world, right? Uh, if you have a guy who's just there for two lines, he's going to rehearse for hundreds of hours <laughs> just to come out on stage and do those couple of lines. It, it makes more sense to double it up. It makes more sense to approach it differently. In film, one scene rolls fall all over the place. And I think one scene roles are a great opportunity for actors to make a meal out of something small. You gotta give them something to do, but you don't want to cast of thousands, right? So I was kind of, I tried to limit it to eight or under speaking roles, if I could. Um, keeps your budget down, you know? Uh, that is, again, a, a more of a theater move than a, than a film move, but I think it's very helpful when you're doing low budget. And just general sort of jumping back, like the difference between theater and, state, and film, I, I love theater. I love, I love the theater. I love, it's a really, it's a different animal because there's no second take. You do something wrong, you've got to amend and keep going. But the flaw is the wrong word. The, the thing about theater is that it is, it's that night. It's that room. It's temporary. Film, you can tell yourself, is kind of forever. Film, you don't have to say, you guys need to come out on a winter night and be here at 8 o'clock, and we're going to do this special thing in this room that's just for you. Film, you can press play whenever you want. Uh, so I don't want to take anything away from theater, but I think that's the attraction of film. Maybe it'll take us several years to get Book of Trespasses out to the audience that we wanted to see, but we're going to do it, and we don't have to fold up our tent beforehand. Sorry, I kind of jumped back on that, but I wanted to mention it. Um, thinking visually, um, 
coming from the, the stage as a writer can be too dialogue focused, and film is a visual medium. <laughs> so you don't want to flower it up. I've read screenplays where it's like uh, the crystal line of the sun is setting on a sparkling ocean through view, and uh, suggestion of evil things swimming beneath the surface and no like uh if you're writing a screenplay you're not writing it for necessarily the enjoyment of the reader you're doing it to say this is the picture that we want to draw on stage and especially in micro budget films it kind of helps to be as plain spoken as possible go raymond carver about it a man a woman a kitchen the rest we figure out on the <laughs> Right? Uh, two people in a car, two people, basic sort of setups, rounded out. So that will help you. Um, I just lost my own thought here. Uh, you have to go into a no budget movie, so things will be changed. Things will come up. When I wrote Book of Trespasses specifically, <clears throat> I was telling myself this is going to be something that's easy to shoot, this is going to be something that we can do very modestly. Take a few months to shoot, maybe a year to edit, because we're kind of figuring things out as we go. We're five years in. We're five years in. And we're getting the movie out there right now. So, uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, it, it, it's been, it's been a, a long, tough, and rewarding journey to get to where we are here. But I'm, nope, don't die on me. Uh, <laughs> You're going to still be writing long after you think the writing stage is finished. Going into the project, when you write that first draft, you think this is amazing. And then you write the second draft, and you think, nailed it. Then you the third draft, it's all still there, but it's much more efficient. Well done. I made some tough cuts. I cut some of my darlings, but this is for everybody. It's not just for me. So we're done. G can speak to this. I would say from the start of the script shooting to when we finished here, the script almost got cut in half again. Some of it was scenes got cut, some of it was like I was condensing two scenes together to make one scene, uh, just forced in creative box choices. But if I dug in and said, no, we're doing the script, we'd either not be here or we'd still be in post-production. They say to be an actor, you have to have a fairly <laughs> malleable ego. You need to have a pretzel of an ego. <laughs> I agree. I agree. I think that's true with being a writer, too. Um, you want to get that script sold. And if someone says, I really like your script, but I think that it would be better served to a PG audience, you say, no, I'm not changing my script. I've been writing for 20 years. This is the first movie. And I did a short film, I guess, before, and this is the first feature film that I got produced. No shouldn't be in the vocabulary. <laughs> you get that script out, even if it's not what you originally set out to do, you have something on your back. You have something to say, well, I did write this movie that people have seen. You know? uh, even, even Charming, the short film we did at the Yorkton Film Festival, being nominated as Best Short Film. This was an amateur film made by a bunch of friends in Saskatoon. And we were competing with professionally produced, I believe, Little Mosque on the Prairie one night year. Okay. So you're going in there to get your work out there. You get your name out there. 
If you can write for your entire life, but if no one's reading it, if nobody knows where you are, uh, again, taking that firm no stance. I'm going to die on this particular field, on this particular hill, uh, hill to defend my art may hurt you. I think you can get to that place where you can dig in, but I rarely think it's helpful. Honestly, I think collaboration is always a good thing, especially the longer you're with it. When I started out writing, I didn't have a wife, I didn't have kids, I was young. I could just spread out on a mattress and write for days. Now I have to stop and start. Now I have to just find my corners, and it's a lot dif more difficult to get into it. So if I'm going to put this much time and this much effort and this much work into getting this thing done, I would really love it if someone read it. I would really love it if someone saw it. So uh, that's what I have to say. I guess I'm running a little bit short here. Um, please, 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 please consider coming to see Book of Trespasses on October 27th because uh, we've worked really hard on it. And over and above that, I know I'm biased because I wrote it. I think it's a really good movie. I think that we're, we're very proud of it. And all that's missing at this point is an audience. So any word of mouth, any kind of uh, thing you can do to help us get this out there. You are my friend. <laughs> you are my friend. You know. Um, like I said, we're going to be doing these speeches for the next three or two weeks. I guess this is the first of the three-week course. Um, and we're going to be hopefully be getting more into the media and more into the promotional aspect of this. But I really appreciate you guys coming out, and I really appreciate it. Everybody here who's halfway interested, just tell their friends. October 27th, Broadway Theater. Supporting local art is important. So thank you. Um, does anybody have any questions? I'm sorry, I ran a little bit short. But, uh, so for five years, where do you guys, like, where does the funding come from? We're largely self-funded. Uh, we did apply for grants, yeah. but no, everyone said, said no. <laughs> it's a tough climate right now. I think that we're, we're back in the grant pool right now, trying to get it into festivals and stuff like that. I'm a little bit more optimistic that we have a better sell today saying we've made this movie, help us get it out there, than when we were saying, we're a bunch of guys who want to make a movie, please give us money. <laughs> um, but that's the big ambition for the next year. 2019, we are trying to get it out in as much as possible, in as many festivals in Canada as we can, uh, most of them hosting internationally and specifically genre festivals. Book of Trespasses is a suspense horror film, <coughs> so we're going to try and play to our audience. But yeah, that's the goal. That's the goal. Hello. Please. Um, so I have no theater background, no background or anything, but but um, we do a lot of writing at work. And while you were talking, I was trying to think of, and maybe you can tell me if there's any like kind of underlying themes that you think apply to like theater writing, film writing, that would also apply to like other types of writing. Because a lot of the stuff you said really resonated with me, even though it didn't apply to theater. Like sort of like it's like advertising or promotional writing or like no, any kind of writing I just just curious if you had like like these are my top three things that I think about when I'm writing something that would be like that you could apply to any type of writing well I go I kind of covered this in this uh, when I started talking about this but a lot of people get really precious about every specific word when they start out is this a complete sentence does this run on 
getting your, your initial thoughts out in as pure a form as possible, even if it's messy, even if it's stupid, gives you a wonderful starting point. That's why I say I believe in drafts. That's why I love the work of writing. So no matter what it is, say you're trying to write a promotion for people to come out to Nine Mile to hear me talk about writing. What would do that? What would get you to go out there to see writing? What would, what would you have to be told to you know, make that an exciting evening for you? You start there, and you kind of bear it down to what's more realistic in either scope and size. I mean, every, every job has its <laughs> pluses and minuses, I guess. Um, Generally, I say give yourself time. A lot of people, I, I guess I do work good with a deadline. I am the guy who would write the essay the night before and stuff like that. But giving yourself the time to do it is always beneficial. Yeah, you can do great things on the stress and kind of barf something out <laughs> at the zero hour, and usually that'll get you through. But I find you'll always be more satisfied with it if you if you've spent the time and what you've written there is is yours, not what you got at the ragged end at the last exhausted second. So, um, yeah, as far as like just specific approaches to writing, um, what about academic writing? <laughs> academic writing? No, those things like totally make sense. So, it's a different animal. Like uh, I've been. Focusing, I guess, on the creative aspect. I mean, if you want to, if you're an English major, there's all sorts of books and texts that tell you exactly what the English major is going to want to hear from you. I was the irritating guy who would always ask, "Can it be a personal essay?" Right? <laughs> because I want to put my voice into it. Uh, and whenever you have the opportunity to put your voice into it, absolutely. I mean, sometimes you have to write cold text. That's just the job. I get that. But anytime you can put a voice to it, I think it's better for you, and it's better for whoever is going to read it. Oh, I agree. <laughs> Anyone else have anything? Hi, Anita. Hi. Um, so, obviously, you've written like a few plays I have. and stuff like that. So, what was it about this particular script that you were like, this could be a movie, as opposed to the other things that you've <coughs> I've almost exclusively worked comedy, dinner theater, and I love horror movies. I've always loved horror movies, wanted to contribute to that genre. So I was jumping ship from theater anyway, so I might as well jump, jump genre. Um, and as much as I said, don't go in with a, a master plan as far as overall themes or something that you want to sell, I did have an axe to grind about bullies. <laughs> I've been bullied all my life. I have this, well, I had been bullied a lot of my life. <laughs> Things have gotten better since I got my growth spurt and everything like that. <laughs> but it's something that, that really, it shatters your confidence. Like, maybe this movie would have been made when I was 30 instead of 40 if I, ha if I had more of that. And I think, I'm not, I'm not playing the pity party, I know I made my own decisions, but I think a lot of what kept me back, what kept me less than confident, was growing up being bullied by a lot of people. And I definitely wanted to put that into the movie. Without being in your face about it, I don't think you're going to come out of the movie feeling like I was lecturing you on why not to be a bully and what the repercussions of bullies are, but it's a movie about revenge. And it's a, a movie that's about how people destroy each other. <laughs> you know, after the end, uh, if, you're, if you're bullied long enough, you kind of become a bully. You kind of become ruined by it. And there's fewer heroes to be celebrated when that happens. And yeah, that was a, something that I specifically knew that I wanted to, to work into this supernatural violence. <laughs> so uh, yeah, counterintuitively, yes, I did go into it with an ax to grind. but. Uh, Mainly, I just wanted to make a good, scary movie, and I think we did that. Oh, Jen. 
For those of us that haven't seen your movie or that haven't had a chance to um, hear anything about it, could you just give us like a quick stuff? Like, what would we expect to go in? Okay. Well, uh, it's a horror genre piece that uh, it's familiarly kind of a love triangle. There are three, three people, two boys, one girl, <laughs> and uh, a, a competition that has lasted. Basically, our main character, Duncan Stewart, was bullied throughout his childhood. And as we catch up to him, he's been institutionalized because this bully did not stop at high school. It's just followed him his entire life. Stole the woman he loved from him, married him, sends pictures of their happy lives to him. Even he'll move city to city. The guy just won't let it go. The story is how he gets that revenge and how that revenge does not help him. Um, I know that doesn't fit in a, in a blurb, but it's, it's a supernatural love triangle, <laughs> I guess is what I would say. And although it is still unrated at this point, it would be rated R. It has violence language and some sexual content. So we checked all the boxes there. <laughs> Um, and yeah, it does have stuff consciously, genre things in it that, that are familiar. You know, somebody might walk slowly down a hallway. A car might not start when someone really wants it to start. But these are fun genre things that I wanted to explore. So. Hello. Hi. Um, you spoke a few times about compromise, and film writing isn't necessarily like sort of. Uh, Malleable? <laughs> what? Malleable? Ma well, malleable and sort of team-oriented team practice, I guess. But you must have, like, feelings to die on. There must be things that There's you There's a win. We got there a few times where I would say, no, I really think we need to keep that. I, and, and I will. I, I'm not saying never do that. Defend your work. And this was a much more collaborative process. G and Jared and I are, are friends on top of being collaborators, so we're willing to hear each other out. And usually, if someone feels strongly about it, we, we respect that. If it's bad for the film and the other two really do it, then we have to sit down, have a few tall beers, and figure it out. I don't think that ever really happened. The idea was to try and make the film feel as much like a movie as possible, and some of the longer stretches of dialogue and some of the speeches, like I said, was making that an obstacle. I think we got around that incredibly nicely. I don't think you're going to come out of the movie thinking, I just watched a play. I think you're going to say, I watched a movie. <laughs> um, yeah, it's a, I see what you're saying. It's, like, it's, it's, it's definitely, you want to defend your work, and there are certain things, like, just like, like we're, uh, let's, let's make it a happy ending. I think we want, to, we, want, we want a happier and we want to send the people out, you know, singing songs. Well, something we do we're making, right? Uh, we, want, uh, we want people to come up thinking. I mean, that was a really exciting story. And uh, maybe I should be nicer to people. <laughs> or, or, or even better, I should tell as many people as possible to watch Book of Trust Bad. <laughs> um, it, I think what I bring that up specifically is for, for higher jobs too. When you're, this is something that we were building for us, and, well, and to show to the people, but this was our baby. So I think I, I, I had a little bit more latitude. I'm talking again like if someone hires you to write sketches for Festival of Trees or stuff like that, and they say, you know what, I think that's a little bit too blue for our crowd. You know, I'd be like, screw you, you don't know what funny is, you hired me to bring you the funny, right? No, always take notes, always take notes. Uh, I always, rarely, rarely does stubbornness help you, right? Some, even sometimes compromise helps you. Even if in the back of your mind you think, it was better the way I had it, but they wanted me to make this change, and I made the change in as fluid a way as possible. 
And when that scene comes, you can still feel a little bit haunted by the other scene that you wanted, but hopefully that compromise led to another thing that you kept, you know? Yeah. There was a, a scene in a very famous horror movie, uh, The Sixth Sense, where uh, Bruce Willis is at a, his wedding, it's sort of a flashback scene, and he gives a monologue to the camera. And apparently, if you'd seen it, it was one of the most amazing performances you ever saw out of Bruce Willis, who tends to sleep his way through most of his work these days. It's not in the movie. There was nowhere to put it. Shyamalan said he loved the scene, and he was like completely crushed by it when, when Bruce did it. He couldn't believe it. He thought, this is your Oscar clip. But if there's nowhere for it in the movie, you got to cut it. So... Uh, that I understand, I understand defending the work. I do, I do. But I think that in anything there must be compromise. And especially if someone's poning up the dough to let you do the thing that you're supposed to do, uh, I think you have to at least, on some level, attempt to meet them halfway. Uh, especially if that gets you to the next job, right? Because <laughs> writing jobs are tough. All right, so you know what I'm talking about. <laughs> All right, thank you so much, you guys, for coming out tonight. I'm sorry if I was a little quick there, Jen. <laughs> um, I appreciate you guys coming out. I appreciate you guys. Please spread the word on Book of Trespasses. We put our heart and soul into it. And yeah, Nine Mile. It's a nice place, right? <laughs> Great beers, pale moon. Please, uh, tell a friend, come back. And thank you for being here. Saturday, October 27th. Don't miss your chance to see the brand new Saskatchewan-made supernatural thriller, Book of Trespasses. Watch! Watch! I was sure he meant to kill me. A chance for prizes for people who come in costume, raffle tickets for great gift baskets, and exclusive Book of Trespasses merchandise available only at this event. Kay, can you get my knife for me, please? Tickets are $15. Where does he split? How? This man should be covered in blood. Book of Trespasses. See it first, October 27th, at the Broadway Theatre. I'm just going to first have a sip of this delightful beverage. <laughs> Try the Pale Moon. It's literally the greatest thing you'll ever drink. Uh, how's everybody doing tonight? Woo! Okay. I, I, don't know, I don't know how I expect people to answer that one in just, you know, enthusiasm. Um, so, uh, my, my name's, yeah, my name's Jared Berry. Uh, I'm one of the three producers uh, of Book of Trespasses here. Uh, I was also the co-director and the director of photography uh, in the film. So, we're doing these three talks here about the film you write, the film you shoot, and the film you edit. Uh, essentially speaking, it's... Uh, Every time you go through that process, the movie you are creating is almost entirely different. Not entirely different, but it's different enough that you have to make changes, you make compromises, and you find some neat things along the way. So uh, last week we had Larry Parsons, our writer and our co-director, uh, talk about the film you write. Uh, next week, on Tuesday at the same time, we're going to have uh, Gareth Nichol, uh, our other producer here, talking about the film you edit. So. Uh, a little bit about myself, I guess. Uh, I'm a photographer, I've been an actor for uh, just over half my life and uh, have gone into film and filmmaking over the past 
10 or so years here. Uh, my first film I made when I was 17, it was a feature film. It wasn't really great. It was called Flatline. If you ever had the... Okay, a few people have seen it. Um, you know, so it was, uh, it was an interesting process. It was one of those things when you're a kid, uh, you're really ambitious. You just, you just want to make something and you have more enthusiasm than technical knowledge or even the resources to do so. But what I would say that it did was it sort of created this level of um, drive and this dedication to take a project from start to finish and never sort of give up even though everything you're doing is possibly wrong. So a lot of times I like to refer to that movie as the film that taught me what not to do. And in this film, we tried to make a lot of the corrections that uh, went wrong on the first one. Um, after that movie was created, uh, there was a television show pilot and a few other things I had on the go that ended up falling through. Uh, so like any young man, I got clinically depressed and I went to school. Uh, so I, uh, one, of the, one of the big issues I had was what, uh, like when you're, when you're looking at film, there's so many different aspects and, and I was trying to analyze what was it that I was really missing out on? And it was, a, it was a couple things. One, it was just basic technical knowledge, understanding how cameras work, what to use a camera, and how you can take your limited resources and create the most dynamic uh, shoots possible given that you are working with very little. The other aspect I realized that I missed out on was a concept of understanding light and how light worked. Um, the idea that you that light is so much important, it lends itself so much to the style, so much to the emotion, and a lot of the tension of what you're creating. And quite often, uh, in films, we... Uh, no, come on in. Oh, no. We almost had them. Oh, oh. They're, making, they're, making, they're making a call, so when they come in, everyone just yell tisk tisk at them and wave your finger for coming late. Um, but uh, no, it, was, it, it became a real serious uh, topic in my mind is like, how does one work with light? So I ended up abandoning film for the longest time. Uh, not a super long time, but long enough that I realized that um, before this project and before I started my film company, Capico Films, uh, I realized that I was really missing out on some of the core fundamental essentials for what it is that makes like a dynamic film and, uh, and how to create something. So uh, we'll talk a bit about that. Uh, I'll try not, I have some notes to kind of keep me on track here, but we're gonna go into some of that. What I'm also gonna talk about is uh, taking a film from the initial script, so when it comes across your desk and you just read it, to pre-production and the actual element of production, which uh, means that with our limited resources and the few of us that there were working on this project, essentially it was uh, three tall guys who had uh, a delusion of grandeur and we thought that we could do something with very little. Um, so the other part of that is, you know, because you have such limited resources, you have to wear a lot of hats. You have to wear, you know, sometimes you're a director, sometimes you're a grip, Sometimes you, I'm like, I'm making uh, 60 feet of intestines in my backyard. There's a whole range of different activities and things that you need to do 
uh, just to get the film done. And you know that sometimes you don't have all of the resources to do that, so you have to take on more than you can chew quite often and have a lot of sleepless nights just to try and make sure that the film keeps progressing. So um, I'm going to talk a little bit about uh, the history of how this project kind of got started. So about, what was it, six years ago? Six years ago I got the script? 2013. 2013, that's a number. Um, so uh, Larry had given me the script and I had been getting back into film. I'd worked as a photographer for a number of years, finally trying to understand how light works. I was doing a lot of gallery shows, a lot of different... Uh, submissions and I was making a decent amount of headway in that but I realized that uh, there was something missing in photography that I really kind of longed for which was uh, a longer narrative and there's there's a lot of aspects of that that really intrigued me and I'll kind of touch on that in a little bit but uh, at that time I was working at what was Agrian Potash Mine as a summer student and I got this copy of the scripts uh, at the time I believe it was called Bullies so I'm sitting in this little office completely covered in potash dust and I'm just flipping through this thing and within a 12 hour shift I had read the script about four different times and I realized that this was the project that I wanted to go back into. This was the, this was the story that I thought was worthwhile telling. Uh, I'd looked at a number of other scripts and I'd been working on some other stuff that of my own that I realized wasn't quite to the level that I wanted it to be, but when I saw the script, the images and just the film just kind of jumped off the page at me, and there was this really intuitive pull. Uh, I just thought the story was engaging, and it was dynamic, and it was fantastic. So what I wanted to do was uh, make this fucking thing. <laughs> and like at the time, uh, there, was a, there was like another guy who was looking to direct it, and uh, you know, other people, we were on talks about doing this. Initially, I wanted to uh, just help out, you know, just be that sort of friendly, spunky kid on the, on the film set who just wants to help create something. So, uh, also, I wanted to audition for one of the main characters because I thought he was really dynamic. And um, luckily, we have the actor who played him, Devin Wesnowski, who uh, flew in from Toronto just for this talk. I'm just going to say that. He, he really didn't, but I'm going to keep telling myself that. Um, but uh, so when I got this script, uh, I, I realized that this was the project that I wanted to do. And as things sort of progressed, I realized that I didn't want to take more of a backseat. I wanted to help produce the film. I wanted it because I thought it could be something great. And I thought that, you know, my years of going through photography and realizing how to work with light and all of the things that I had made the miscalculations on in my first independent film, I could really assist on this one. Long story short, uh, things sort of changed and uh, I ended up having a conversation with Larry in his garage one night saying, you know, if, if we're worried that this film's not going to get made, why don't we just do it? And it was one of those things where it was like, I don't, think, I don't think I've made such a serious commitment to anything else in my life because the length of time that this takes is longer than uh, most of my relation, all of my relationships and uh, most marriages that I know. So when, uh, when Gareth, Larry and myself got together and we said we're going to do this, like let's, let's just do this thing, right? So, but knowing that that's a huge uphill battle, um, knowing that there's a lot of things in our way, but 
I always had this sort of overwhelming sense of optimism that it can be accomplished, that we can tighten our belts, and that we can we can do a lot with very little as long as we think creatively. Uh, we didn't have much of a budget on this film. Like, I mean, that's just that's just a fact. And shortly after when we started getting to pre-production, uh, the film tax credit got cut. And so that kind of really clawed us back on the idea of what we could do and financing that we could get with the film. And at that point, I had taken all of the money I'd raised from my potash job and I invested it into film gear just to convince everyone that I was serious about making this movie. Um, you know, because I thought it's either going to be this project or it's going to be another one. But the, the story really gr grabbed me and I always thought that like this is the story that I think is worth telling. So that's sort of how, from my perspective, how things sort of got rolling. Um, so talking about a little bit about uh, taking the scripts from, from when it comes across your desk to when you get it, uh, when, you, when you kind of try and get it on its feet, there's a lot of different things that go into that and I can't touch on all of them unfortunately, so if there's questions, by all means afterwards. But one of the big things is, um, there's two kinds of scripts that, I'll always, that I've always been able to read. There's ones that um, are essentially just plied with detail uh, you know the you know this character picks up the the mug with his left hand and then wipes his brow, you know. And uh, so there's there's those scripts that you get, and there's uh, and they're very descriptive. You see how they are, and then there's scripts where you essentially get your location, uh, a little bit of stage direction, and you get your uh, your dialogue. And the the awesome part about this film, and I think one of the big intuitive things was. Um, it there was there were sections of it that had that sort of really finite that really like strong detail to it and then there was the sections that were almost very interpretable about how you would do this and there's some uh there's some longer dialogue scenes and i so when i'm reading this i'm thinking what's the like what's the image in my head as i'm reading this how would one film this in a really dynamic way to to take a, a conversation essentially of two people sitting across from an office room talking and, and bring in tension and bring in this, this idea that uh, just because people are having a conversation across a desk doesn't mean that you can't shoot it dynamically or build tension while you're doing that. So that was really important to me. And while I was reading it, uh, a lot of the images and a lot of the concepts that I, we later on like translated into storyboards ended up making it from the, the initial reads into those sort of storyboards because uh, it's one of those few projects that when I read it, it seemed like it came uh, in full view. It was just, you just got the script and you just knew what you wanted to make it. And I think that was the other reason why I, th I felt so passionately about wanting to make this film uh, my own to an extent and also work with creative people who are as invested in it as I am. So, uh, you know, so you take the script and then you get the people who are crazy enough to agree to do this with you, and then you're like, okay, but now what? So the next step, uh, besides figuring out locations, actors, things like that, is taking the scripts that you've, you have and creating a series of storyboards or uh, at minimum uh, shot lists. So storyboards, if you don't know, are essentially just little comic pictures. Uh, you know, they don't have to be much. Uh, but they explain your shots. Uh, we numbered and coded the shots uh, in order to go from your master shots that you'll consistently cut back to, your wides, your mediums, your close-ups, and then you have your insert shots. 
So essentially what we did was uh, I, just, I just storyboarded the shit out of these scripts just day and night, day and night, day and night. And all the while hoping that the locations on paper are no different than the ones in my head because to me, uh, when that image feels so strong, uh, it almost feels traumatic to have to change it uh, later on down the road. I, I realize in myself that I'm somewhat anal retentive about that, but uh, we ended up uh, we ended up creating these uh, storyboards. And when you're creating your shot lists, uh, it really depends on your situation. Logically, it sounds like it makes sense to shoot things chronologically as they happen. You know, this line goes to this line goes to this line. But in film and working with your schedule and working with your actors and what shots you need to, specifically with outdoors, which I, if anyone here wants to make films, I try and say don't film outdoors in Saskatchewan as much as you can. <laughs> the weather will betray you always. Always. <laughs> always. But, uh, but I mean, it also lends me to some other neat skills like, uh, like being able to judge how fast a cloud is going by and being able to time a shot and set up a shot saying, okay, well now it's, it, we have direct sunlight, th this whole shoot is overcast, and I see a cloud on that, like, in the distance there, and you just by approximating, you go, okay, we have 90 seconds to get this shot set up before our light is ruined and we have to wait. So you, you would start with, but quite often you start with your, your wide shots, your masters, as you would say. Um, you know, a lot of those are, yeah, just your wider shots. These are the ones you're always going to go back to. And it gives the actors a really good opportunity to run through the lines, run through the whole scene. You set up the camera and you're able to just go and go. And yet you work out the blocking, everything like that. And then as the day progresses, you're able to go into those sort of tighter shots. Uh, th that's for two reasons. One, you can always get away with having a master shot, a wider shot, and having your blocking work out. Um, you can't just have a scene of inserts, otherwise people get completely jarred up and crazy. Um, but the other aspect of it is uh, time. You're always racing against the clock, and when you're budgeting for an hour, assume that it'll always take three. Um, it never goes on time. There's a lot of sit around and a lot of go to all of these situations. And so, uh, you know, we start wide, we shoot all of our wide shots first. And then we go into some of the close-ups, and we go into some of the detail shots, because if it's, if it's a hand grabbing a bottle, if our main actor's not there, we always have somebody who can be a hand model on set who can work as a stand-in to grab that bottle. And uh, throughout the film, you may or may not notice if you actually come to the film on October 27th on the Broadway Theater. Um, tickets are on sale now today officially, by the way, so no big deal. But... Um, if you start wide and you work your way in tighter, uh, it allows you to make sure that you have consistency to some degree. Uh, there's, there's always, the, if you have people moving props around, you need continuity, and we did really well on it, surprisingly, for the limited amount of people. Usually you have one person dedicated to that, but um, that's always been a, a huge headache for anyone. Um, but when you can move in tighter uh, afterwards, you, those are always shots you can pick up. Uh, one of a really good example is we were shooting in Asquith, I believe. There was a, there was a night shot. Now I don't know. It was what July? Uh, yeah, it was the uh, end of June. Yeah, so it's the end of June. So we're we're budgeting a shot or a shoot that is quite involved. It's it's one of the bigger scenes in our film. 
but uh, realizing that we have a limited amount of darkness. Usually people are always racing against the, the light the opposite way. You're waiting as it gets darker, you're kind of panicking. But we had the opposite problem where we started shooting as soon as it got dark and the sun started to rise. But the great thing about that is with your camera, if you know how to use it, when you're moving to your tighter shots, it's easier to take a stop down on your exposure and, and, and add darkness than it is to necessarily add light. So we shot most of our wide shots and then afterwards we were able to go in and uh, darken, dark, use the camera, use the settings properly and drop the exposure so we can try and match the light as best we could even though sun was on the horizon. But because the, the, the wide shots were already accomplished, we didn't have to worry about seeing the sunrise in the background because then we're just shooting hands and close-ups of faces. So you have to manage your shoots not based on what seems logical, which is to simply just go chronologically, but by necessity. A lot of that goes into time, uh, light, also actor schedules. Sometimes you need stand-ins. Sometimes you can only shoot with somebody for a few hours, and so you have to rearrange your priorities and always jump from lily pad to lily pad just to, to keep the ship afloat. Um, the uh, other thing you always have to consider um, in regards to when you're planning a shoot is is the, the two big things for me were, was how is light important to this film? Um, to me, light is one of the most important things that uh, is completely underrated at, and I, I get very obsessive about it. One of, the, one of the big issues we had was this film has essentially three separate timelines and without putting a marker in place before every timeline to reorient the audience into knowing which timeline it is. What can you personally do as a filmmaker to separate these timelines? So what I created was uh, the idea of using a color wheel. Every timeline has a different color scape. Uh, we, the prologue has a sort of a dingy blue and sickly green to it. Um, these scenes that take place at this uh, Christian Bible camp uh, inspired by a lot of 70s slasher movies, especially the Friday the 13th movies and whatnot, uh, really utilizing saturated colors, like really having like largely saturated colors, using sort of stage lighting almost, uh, creates this sort of, not hyper-realistic, but this sort of surreal quality that when you're in that timeline, it's such a, it's such a huge divide between, between uh, it's a night and day difference, as you might say, uh, the other timeline we used, uh, it really pulls back on that saturation. It's shot more as a realistic, uh, sort of almost documentary style uh, color scheme. Uh, another neat thing about uh, one of the scenes in the camp uh, ground timeline is that we have a scene in an office and we're, we're cutting back to it, we're cutting back to it, we're cutting back to it. But um, to add to the emotional intensity of the scene, what we had done was we had built the set and had a bunch of uh, different lights and we were mixing those lights up. Uh, I'm a, a lot of people like to work with only LEDs or only halogens, but I think that's complete bullshit because uh, you can create some really beautiful images and some real unique, deep, rich textures by mixing your different light sources. And I think I'll, that oftentimes gets undervaluated. And a lot of times in independent films, you'll see that they have the same light kit. They have the same setup. You have, uh, you have a, a softbox on a 45 degree angle shooting uh, a key light on one side of a face and that's just what people are going to use.
But in, in this, we were, had the benefit of uh, taking over our buddy's garage, uh, hooking up LED lights that we were able to change. So every time we cut back to this, the, the scene at this uh, camp office, we were able to sort of change the lights ever so slightly to add to the emotional intensity and it reflects that sort of internal uh, struggles that the, Karens, the, the characters are going through. So we start off with a really warm, sort of yellowy light, it's daylight, it's sunset, it's just about to come down. Then we get warmer and you start to hear the crackle of the fireplace and everything like that. And it goes to an orange and the next time we cut back is to a red and then later on to a very cool and quiet blue. And those are subtle details that I don't necessarily expect an audience to understand or even think about or let alone appreciate. But I do believe that internally you can feel it. You can feel that sort of difference. And uh, I mean, it, it might be a lot of work for very minimal payback, but I think at the same time too, it's necessary when you're, when you're planning these things out because you, you don't have a lot of money but you can you can increase the style in which you decide to shoot things. You can go into these things with uh, passion and a very strong vision. And even even if you're wrong, which I don't think we are, but even if you are wrong, I do think that making a bold choice and failing dramatically and failing amazingly is far better than uh, failing just a little bit or succeeding just a little bit. I would always choose to be a big failure than a small one because I can live with a big failure. I can live with that because the thing is, it's like at the end of the day, you can say, you know what, I, I literally gave it everything I got. Maybe I'm a shit filmmaker, but I gave it everything I possibly can. Hey, Tanner. Hey, Amanda. You guys should try the Pale Moon. It's the most delightful drink ever made. Um, but, uh, so like, I'm really passionate about light. I, I, I hope you can realize that. I imagine you can. It's really obsessive to some degree. Uh, I know when I was writing my honors dissertation in psychology, I actually oriented my project towards um, documenting the final portraits of people who were terminally ill. So I would go around taking people's last portraits and I realized how important light goes into play with uh, those images, uh, it's not something you can just kind of throw off or not really think about. It's, it's very valid to what it is you're doing. Um, it creates uh, the dramatic tension, it creates levity, it creates so much, and you're really able to sort of shape your, uh, your images. Um, another thing, just to, before I get off the light topic, because I feel like I'm stringing the same instrument, um, is, is night shots are a horror. In, the, in themselves and anyone who's shot uh, an independent film has to realize that night shots are possibly one of the most difficult things you can possibly do because at the end of the day um, like we were hauling generators into the forest because we didn't have uh, power and light sources and and uh, and you can you there's a multiple different ways you can approach it uh, you could do like the 28 weeks later situation and shoot during the day change color filters in post and shoot that sort of day for night which I'm not particularly a huge fan of um, you can use it when it's necessary but it uh, it creates an odd sort of tone or, or, or texture to it uh, you can also do the walking dead situation where you use one single key light which I think is lazy and then you have a lot of these really high contrast dramatic 
shapes, which similar to the comics, I guess makes sense. I still think it's lazy. Um, the other, the other way uh, that we decided to approach it was, no, we're gonna light it like we would inside of a studio. So when you have a character and you're filming them from the front and you have the key light, uh, in our case, we created what we called the Pale Moon Tower, which is also based on what this drink is made about. The Pale Moon, it's delightful. Anyways, so I'm trying to sell this thing, it's great. It really is, um, but the thing is, so we created this, was it 16 feet tall? 16 foot tower of white light. So that's, that's what you would consider your key light. That's your main light source. But to sort of break the characters up from the darkness, uh, we would add in blue or purple LED lights uh, and use them as halo lights. So they're the lights that go behind the subject that breaks them out of the black. Uh, when you're shooting in a forest, particularly uh, a running sequence, which I'm going to just show you right away. You're the first to see it, by the way. Um, but when you're able to actually uh, break some of the images out of the darkness, you, you create depth in your film. And a lot, of, a lot of independent films and a lot of high-budget films, too, really sort of uh, overlook the importance of depth at night and uh, depth in these like sort of textures. So the Saskatchewan forests, mind you, are absolutely terrifying at night. Um, even just filming it when we're going out to these really weird remote locations and, and lighting these things, I got genuinely creeped out, knowing that no, nothing's really there in the woods, but you don't know. <laughs> you, you really don't. So um, what we did was we strung out all these generators and different lights. We had our moon tower, which was our key light. And then we would splice in all these other lights to hit these sides of trees, to hit these profiles with these sort of blues and these purples, just to sort of create this, uh, this sort of texture um, and, and depth in the, in the film. So if you don't mind, I'm going to just uh, show you a uh, sneak peek clip, first ever seen. So the other thing too is, I guess in regards to light and the way you shoot a film, you, you're always trying to balance the idea of believability and style. Um, what can be what can be plausible without being like, unless you're making a hyper hyper reality film. Like, I mean, if you if if you watch like Twelve Monkeys, for example, you're like, that's just a jarring film to watch. But uh, you know, there's there's those sort of ideas that you're always trying to work with is. Um, what can I do that's unique and makes this thing amazing, but also what can I do to sort of add that sort of style so that if people look back on it, they go, hey, yeah, you actually thought about some stuff, you know, like, good for you, like, you know? Uh, but the other thing too is, and it leads me into one of my other more important topics is um, one of the most, in, one of, yeah, I think the most important character in a film is the camera. Um, and a lot of times, uh, I mean, maybe the director of photography would always say that, but at the same time, too, you, if you treat camera as character, you're telling, you're telling a story. Uh, you're, telling a, you're telling a story in a dynamic way. The camera is the narrator. Uh, as a filmmaker, you're choosing what to include and what to exclude. So when you're cropping a frame, uh, you're choosing how much of this scene are we going to focus on and how much of it is gonna be completely removed. And at the end of the day, what you have on camera is all that you have to work with. 
So you always want to shoot more knowing that in editing you're going to peel back and you can't always just go back to the day and just, oh, I wish we had that shot, I wish we had that shot. You want to shoot as much as you can, but having that sort of concept that the camera is the character and having that intent and there's a, there's a sort of emotional intimacy that you can get as a, as a filmmaker narrator. One of, uh, there's a film called uh, Black Christmas. I don't know if anyone's familiar. It's a... It's one of the most famous slasher films. It was the first slasher film, to be honest. Uh, it was Canadian, and it kind of revolutionized the way that people looked at uh, camera work in regards to that particular genre. So that was the first movie to use the camera as a point of view perspective from the serial killer. And we would go to the windows uh, in this film, and you would see the serial killer looking in on these innocent victims who had no idea that he was there. It created this awesome dramatic tension because it had the motion, it had the breathing added to it after. And there's these characters who are just going on and they're doing their daily business and they don't know of the impending danger that there is. So there's this real tension that's built into the film. And I think that that's something that's uh, uniquely Canadian film history is pretty cool. But at the same time too, it's, uh, it's something that you, as a filmmaker, you should always be thinking about because it's very easy to set up the wide shot, the medium shot, and the close-up shot. But unless you're thinking about the emotional tone and the emotional context of what the camera can provide and using the tools at your disposal uh, that you have in the most uh, effective way possible, you can do a lot with either handheld or a tripod, absolutely. There's other tools out there. Now they have gimbals. I love gimbals. We didn't have it when we started, but we got one near the end and it was fantastic. Um, these motorized things, we could shake a camera and the thing doesn't move and it's fantastic. But uh, you know, those are important things that you have to think about because you're bringing a story to life and how you tell that story is a visual one. It's, there's, there's the scenes, there's the dialogue, there's the acting, which is fantastic. But you just always have to remember the medium that you're in, which is primarily a visual one. And unless you're really sort of putting some thought and uh, some sort of motivation and making some bold choices with that, uh, you may have some great performances. I've seen some mumblecore movies that the filmmaking was pretty garbage, but there's some great performances. But, you know, I was like, with a little bit of just, you know, whatever, maybe it could be a fantastic film. Um, the concept of we'll, we'll fix it in post. I made a special note of that because the, the idea is when you have so much sort of stacked up against you, um, so often it's like, we didn't get that shot or, you know, I think we got it, but I'm not really too sure. And everyone's exhausted. You've worked a 12 or a 16 hour day and, oh, hi, Tyler. Um, but, uh, but you have like a 12 or you have a 16 hour day and you don't really know uh, you don't really know if you have the shot you need. Some asshole on any set you work on will always say, you know what, we'll fix it in post. And if you ever are on set and you hear that, you punch that person as hard in the face as you possibly can. Because whether it's 10 minutes or an hour on set, I can guarantee you the fix is generally about 16 hours on somebody else's time in post. That's a minimum 16 hours. There's things that we're like, you know, I think we got it. Like, and we've said that too, so I'm, guil I'm guilty of it. But realizing on the back end of it, how much actual time it is to sort of fix uh, is really, really difficult. 
there's a lot of time and money that goes into shooting, but you wouldn't believe the bills and the time you can rack up when you're in post trying to make something when you don't have the shots that you need to accomplish what it is. So you really have to, uh, you sometimes really have to dig in your heels and sort of bear down. And I think that's the other thing about, especially independent filmmaking. I mean, if we had the budget of Michael Bay or James Cameron, that's one thing. Um, you can pick shots and you can be very particular about what you want and how you want to see it. There's, there's shots in the movie that um, I know that like, I was probably a bit of a asshole about to be honest like I realized that like there's times where I would dig my heels in the sand and be like no I like I want this shot like I know it's expensive I know it's time like you know there's a lot of time involved we ended up building two different graves for this one shot and the process of actually going out and digging graves and making the stage was absolutely enormous and super costly but but I think that our producers and all of us will agree that it was totally worth it <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> and that's the thing is, and, and so there's, there's shots that you fight for because you're really passionate about it and the image was so clear in your mind that you feel like you would be giving up something and you know, and in filmmaking you're always going to be giving up something but there's a few opportune moments where it's worth digging in your heels for that artistic sort of integrity to say like, no I know we're tired, I know we're exhausted and I know everybody on set hates me right now but we need to get this shot, we didn't get it, and we want to be able to fix this, right? And then there's other sh times where you go, this was the plan, we don't have time for that. So you kind of take a little bit of a backwards stance, you take a step back and you go, you know, what's the priorities? If, if I can be a little looser on, this, on these shots and I can change up things on the fly to accommodate the scheduling conflicts and just your general, uh, the general problems with it, you... Sometimes you can come up with some really cool stuff uh, and just being kind of loose with it and just sort of seeing how things kind of flow. But you always have to balance the ability to accommodate your schedule and picking those really key moments that are important to you as a filmmaker, but more importantly, what you think is integral to tell the story that you set out to tell. And I think that that's one of, uh, one of the biggest things. Um, how much time? Five? Okay. So... I skipped a few things, but at the same time, too, uh, I, f you know what, I'm just going to talk about filming gore for a really quick point in time. It's awesome. It's really cool. Uh, some of my favorite days were making, like, things like intestines or severed heads or, like, or, like, uh, we had a, we called it a flesh corset. So this uh, actress has this corset that we're, like, have intestines just ripped out. And sorry, spoilers, but what, you're going to see the movie anyway, so I don't really care. But the thing is, you know, so some of those days where I'm just in my backyard and I'm just making, you know, we're just making like all of these cool prosthetics and things like that. We have, uh, we have the shot of Josh here. Uh, I took a class from a lady who did uh, Freddy Krueger's makeup on like the first two installments. Um, I don't know if you can see it. This is uh, Joshua Beaudry, famous local actor. Um, so he is really claustrophobic. I don't know if he, I don't know if I should say that, but he was, it was really hard for him to go into makeup and he was in makeup for about 12 hours and we would continually keep adding layers and layers and layers. Uh, we ended up digitally editing out his, uh, his uh, eyes. Thank you, Tyler. Um, so we ended up digitally editing his eyes to add like a thick sort of demonic glossy black. It's only in the film for a while, but uh, it, it makes it sort of worthwhile. Um, but shooting gore and being able to shoot those sort of action sequences 
Uh, you're, you're taking something that on screen looks incredibly destructive, and you're actually doing the reverse. You're making something that's incredibly creative. To make, to, to make destruction on film takes a whole lot of energy and a whole lot of creativity. And I think that that's, uh, that's one of the big things that I think why, you know, I mean, horror gets a bad rap, but the creative teams that kind of go into making these effects and these sort of slasher gore things happen uh, are beautiful, creative people. And I mean, I was driving around with intestines and severed heads in the back of my vehicle for a while, and I had a coworker try and get uh, some jumper cables out of my trunk one day, and she just shuts it. And I said, did you find something? And she's like, nothing I wouldn't expect. <laughs> But uh, anyways, I'm going to wrap it up in case we have any questions uh, and things like that. But uh, I hope you enjoyed the talk, and thank you very much for coming. Also, this drink is amazing. Okay, so uh, yeah, tonight I'm going to talk about the film you edit, which is different from the first in our series of little talks here, which was the film you write, and different from the second in our series, which was the film you shoot. But just as a quick recap, the movie you write, uh, Larry Parsons, the writer of the film, talked about the importance of doing drafts, starting longhand, going to the computer after that, uh, just continuing to refine the draft until you finally got something that you feel is worthy of putting on screen. Uh, secondly, he talked about turning a stage play into a screenplay. Uh, originally, it started out as a stage play, so moving it to the screen is uh, something of a task that needs to take place before you can even begin the process of shooting. And then uh, taking away half of the words was part of what we had to do. Um, it was a hundred plus page script to start, and we've got about 50 pages left, so it was, uh, it was Lychee, it was death by a thousand cuts, I guess, but uh, anyway, that was sort of the first talk that Larry went through. The second talk was Jared, he talked about the movie you shoot, uh, the importance of camera as character, meaning the POV in storytelling. Um, the point of view of the camera can definitely be a character, it lends itself to film, in a way that obviously you can't control on the stage. And uh, I think you used the example, oh, I can't remember now. Black Christmas. Black Christmas, staring through the window from the outside, right? And how you can really build tension in a scene simply by putting the camera outside from where the action is, letting the characters inside be completely oblivious to the horror that waits outside. And then, of course, you also talked about the importance of lighting to ensure that all of your action is clear, particularly at night shoots. Uh, we had a lot of night shoots on this film, and lighting was vital, and that's where our pale moon sort of came from. We had a moon tower, we called it. It was uh, 16 feet in the air, huge, white, bright light, 
just in order to try and bring the characters out from the darkness behind them as well as the backlighting which was vital in doing that otherwise you end up with a really muddy image that just can't be seen on screen and I think we've all watched a film or two that's been so dark you can't actually make out the action that's going on and it's a frustrating thing particularly in indie film so uh, yeah that's a slight recap of what we've covered so far and tonight I'm talking about the movie you edit and how it changed during this process so, editing. Editing uh, is effectively just the process of making choices. Uh, each of us, like, uh, we've all edited. We all each edit every day, actually. When you get up in the morning, you choose which shoes you're going to wear or which sweater you're going to put on. It's a form of editing, basically. Or, um, gosh, what else can I think of? Uh, getting a haircut. That's another way to edit yourself. Um, but it's all in an effort, right, to sort of put your best foot forward, make what you want to have people see be the thing that they see. And that's much the same with film. Uh, so on its most fundamental level, I think film editing is the art or technique or practice of assembling shots into a coherent sequence. Uh, the job of an editor really isn't simply to mechanically cut film, especially in the digital age, but uh, not cut off film slates or edit dialogue even. Uh, you have to sort of creatively work with the layers of images, story, dialogue, music, as well as actors' performances to effectively sort of uh, reimagine and even rewrite the film to craft a cohesive whole. Um, editors usually play a pretty dynamic role, actually, I would say, in the making of a film, uh, making choices that will elicit the right or the correct emotion from the audience, as well as establishing pace and tone of your movie. Um, actually, there's a simple example of this that I'm going to sort of walk us through here. Um, it was given by a guy named Lev Kuleshov in Russia years and years ago, who put together a simple reel of film. And uh, it starts basically with the shot of a man. And after running the film of just this shot of a man, he then showed a shot of a bowl of soup then went back to the shot of the man. Then after that, went to a shot of a girl in a coffin. After that, went back to the shot of the man. Then went to a shot of a woman sort of laying on a chaise lounge, basically. And then back to the man himself. So what he found after showing this film was that people started to relate an emotion from the man's face, even though the man's face, if you noticed, doesn't change at all. It's the same shot of the man, but you put it next to a bowl of soup and people thought, oh, he's hungry. You put it next to the shot of a girl in a coffin, oh, he's sad. You put it next to the shot of a woman laying on the chaise and, oh, he's lustful. And I guess that's sort of, <laughs> he realized, I guess, it's a mental phenomenon, right? Which uh, viewers derive more meaning from the interaction of two sequential shots than from any one single shot in isolation. So we all have this desire to mentally connect the dots. It's uh, like not dissimilar from reading a text message that you've gotten from somebody that's filled with errors. You s correct the message for them, right? It's we can't wait to wait to really make those corrections for people, and uh, especially in that sort of 
context. But the point is, is that uh, cinema consists of these image fragments, which in reality kind of have a distinct content, and it's in the assembly of those fragments, it's the assembly of all of those elements, that the importance uh, of relaying emotion of the story to its audience actually takes place. So basically, yeah, that's sort of a basic rundown of what editing is. These are all very standard edits as well, just cutting from one shot to the next shot with uh, nothing really in between. So, and editing itself has actually given rise to an entire genre of programs, basically. If anybody's ever seen a sports news program or sensationalist programs where like world's craziest crashes or you know top 10 home runs of the year all of that is pure editing and they even take it to the next level by uh you know putting it in slow motion for us so if you're watching watching that boxing match or that ufc match they really like to slow it down for the moment when you can actually see the fist connect with the face and you see the person's lights go out because that's awesome so, everybody likes it, it's great. Uh, so yeah, they use slow motion looping just to emphasize those highlights effectively. Um, so, for Book of Trespasses, we basically started with a very simple assembly of what we called our master shots. These are the two shots, two characters, 180 degrees. Um, oh, that's the Russian who came up with the original design. Uh, Right, so we have these two shots, and basically these are our master shots. They sort of occur in every scene, and we laid them out back to back to back to back to back until we had our completed film. But um, when we first did this, we discovered that we had a movie that was about two and three quarter hours long, and we realized that was just something we were unprepared to put an audience through. Um, so one of the first things we did was figure out a way to compress the storytelling so it was more efficient. So Book of Trespasses has two distinct timelines that run concurrently, the present and the action that took place three years previous. So we used something that's basically called parallel editing in order to, or cross-cutting, to basically, it uh, sort of alternates two or more scenes that often would happen simultaneously but in different locations. If the scenes are simultaneous, they occasionally culminate in a single place where the relevant characters confront one another. So it required some script editing, editing as well, obviously, but essentially combines action and dialogue from two separate scenes to create one single scene. The best example uh, that I have for you is actually from uh, what we've come to call our Matt speech. Um, this is our main character who uh, the uh, incomparable Matt Burgess, who was absolutely fantastic in the role, in my opinion. And uh, I'm going to actually just show you the clip, because it seems relevant. Sorry, bear with me. Right. So this is Matt's speech. Uh, he's delivering this speech to um, basically... He's in a psychiatric institution. He's being released this day. He's on his way home, and he's giving his final talk to basically the friends and people that he met in his small group that talked about their problems. So I will show that to you right now. It was originally him talking, followed by him heading home afterwards to discover that 
things hadn't really changed for him as much as he wanted them to. So. I've got this old journal with me here today. I've always kept a diary. It's just a way of telling myself my life story. Yes, you know, in case I should forget it. Anyway, there was a time, a much younger place in my life, where I had many journals. I called this book my book of trespasses. It is nothing more than a detailed list of the many indignities, beatings, and humiliations I've suffered at the hands of bullies. As you all know, my troubles stem from, well, they have a lot to do with the bully. father was a bully, and so was my stepfather. My sister was a bully too, but she grew up. I've had bosses and landlords, some of them were bullies too, but plagued by them. But the sad and shameful truth is that the worst of them, the cause of so much of my misery goes back to the schoolyards. A bully that has followed me school to school and city to city for almost 20 years now. What happens, I wonder, if you can't outgrow or escape a bully? What happens if that bully takes from you not just your joy of living, but the one thing that you love most in this world? What happens when that bully invades your very dreams? What do you do when you meet a person whose sole purpose in this world is to see that you suffer. How do you forget, let go, move on from a life's work of humiliation? I tell you honestly, standing here, I have no forgiveness. No. But I am willing to start. To let go. Just let it all go. Put an end to my book of trespasses after some sound advice from somebody that I respect very much. But I kept this first volume. Carried it around with me. But why do that? Why record it? Why hold on to it? Why? Alright cheery clip, I know. Um, but what I'm just trying to illustrate with this is that there are two scenes that are actually taking place. Matt is talking to this group of people at the hospital before he's discharged, and the second scene, as written, was him then going home, discovering this letter in his mailbox, discovering that his bully, not only has he not left him alone, but has almost been lying in wait in this mailbox by virtue of this letter and these photographs, just for an extra level of torment. So, yeah, it's, uh, by combining these scenes together, we were basically able to advance the story and accentuate the character's emotional torment more so. And we use this method of parallel editing in almost all of our past timeline sequences. Uh, the initial change, of course, brought the runtime down significantly and really just, I think, made the, the movie more cinematic. I should also mention that this 
footage that I'm showing you is actually three years old. This was this was the rough cut the very first time we'd actually blended these scenes together and sort of discovered we can make this work. So since then we've obviously done a ton of sound editing in order to even out his dialogue. We've added a lot of uh, key sounds. We've also added score just to help the scene sort of ramp up emotionally. And I think that's sort of the point of parallel editing as a rule is again, just to significantly accentuate the character's emotional state at any given point in time, which although Matt did a beautiful job and delivered the speech in an exceptional way, I think we were able to add to it by showing these shots of him heading home afterwards. So. So yeah, a lot of people, I think editing sometimes gets overlooked in film, just generally speaking, and I found dozens, hundreds actually, of quotes of not just editors, but lots of filmmakers in the industry who insist on being involved in the editing process, particularly directors, actually. Kurosawa is one who edits all of his own films. The Coen brothers, if you're familiar with any of their work. Roderick Jane Jr. is the two of them, and they edit all of their own movies. Um, it's, it's true that in a lot of ways the film is actually crafted in the editing room uh, with the pieces that you've been given uh, to work with. I think uh, Philip Seymour, may he rest, uh, said it in an interesting way. Uh, film is made in the editing room. The shooting of the film is about shopping almost. It's like going to get all the ingredients together and you've got to make sure before you leave the store that you got all the ingredients and then you take those ingredients and you can make a good cake or not and it's so true um, the editing process is therefore really demanding and I was so happy that the three of us actually sat down together to do it all I think uh, it's awfully stressful as one person to try and get it right without at least a second or third pair of eyes looking after you because so much can change. It really is a puzzle of a thousand pieces that has no image. So you can put it together as many different ways as you want, and it really can make or break the movie that you're trying to put out there. So um, anyway, another way that we were able to sort of use creative editing to improve cinematic quality was using cutaways. Cutaways take the audience away from the main action or subject, and are used primarily as sort of transition pieces uh, to give the audience a view of what's happening either outside of the main character's environment or reflect the internal mood of that character. Um, it also goes a long way in helping you emphasize specific details or the mise-en-scene and uh, allows us to sort of add meaning to them. Uh, I have an example from our campfire scene. Our lead female actor, Kay uh, Elizabeth Nepchuk, is telling Duncan, Matt Burgess, about her mother-in-law. Originally, the sequence included a lot of detail about the mother-in-law, uh, but there was a need to emphasize for us an approaching evil presence and also a need to take away some of those details simply because we were, we were running our time 
far too long. I think the campfire scene was, what, 20 minutes when we started? Yeah. yeah. And we've got it down to about seven. So that's, uh, but we had to use this method of cutaways in order to get there. So it's a simple example, and it's kind of brief, but I'm going to give it to you anyway, because I went through the trouble of doing this. So here we go. So this is... Kay talking about her mother-in-law. Last year, she started to slip. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's actually become one of my very favorite scenes because uh, it's, it's truly intimate between these two characters who have sort of suffered equally at the hands of the same bully, and so they can sort of commiserate on this. And Kay is basically explaining the mother-in-law who she thinks may have been responsible for... Uh, the bully's actions, but anyway. She refused to see a doctor and would rage if you just suggested that there was something wrong with her. She said she could remedy herself. It was clear after a while that she was suffering from senility or Alzheimer's or something terrible like that. Cut away. She wouldn't be moved, and we just couldn't say no to Nan. She got violent. She got mean. Eventually, even Henry was scared of her. And when she started relieving herself regularly at the dinner table, well, we broke down and made the call. Cut away. I stopped feeling so lost all the time. I started seeing the kind of life I was living, and Henry. Henry was not Henry anymore. He became nice. He doted on me. He tempted genuine romance. Well, that's, I don't know, good for him, I guess. Uh -huh. So yeah, you saw the cutaways there. Basically, we went to the campfire. We were trying to sort of get into the ambience of the scene as much as possible. Uh, anybody who's sat around a campfire, you know how mesmerizing that fire is. You can't help but stare at it. It seemed wrong to be sitting in a campfire scene like this and not actually see the campfire at some point. But it did give us the opportunity to basically strip away a lot of the script that uh, we needed to. It's a, it's a delicate process because you don't want to lose any pieces of the story. You don't want to lose any of the delicious details of the script, of which there were many. But at the same time, you really need to advance the narrative without uh, boring your audience. And not that we would expect to bore anybody, but certainly a protracted scene of dialogue is hard for people to sit through. Uh, these days, it's rare, rare in film to find any scene of dialogue that lasts more than a few minutes because we simply don't have the attention span for it. So we used cutaways to literally cut away pieces of the script while and at the same time adding ambience to the entire film, which I think actually worked very well, very, very well indeed. Um, another way to use cutaways is uh, during dialogue sequences. 
great example of this is a scene from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I don't know if anyone's seen it. But uh, it's the scene where uh, Rooney is, he believes he's talking to Ferris on the phone. And he's, you know, met with the realization that Ferris is actually waiting on the other line. And you see his secretary freaking out, trying to let him know that, no, this isn't Ferris on the phone. Listen up, dipshit, he says. And uh, he's basically, yes, he's, he's put in a pretty awkward spot. So, uh, but that's another way to use cutaways. Thanks for coming, Eddie. Delicious drink. Could I have another? <laughs> no, seriously. <laughs> um, uh, it's hot in here. Um, or is it cold? I can't tell. All right. So um, in terms of another sort of editing, a standard trick in editing is the montage. Now, some of you may have heard that word before, probably from the marionette feature Team America. It's another technique that has been around for a long, long time. And the idea behind the montage is to use rapid cuts of imagery to help convey the passing of time or to just aid in the context of the narrative, which is, I think, more what we used it for, particularly with the clip I'm going to show you. Works perfectly to heighten the tension of a moment and also inform the character uh, to some degree. So um, we used it mostly in our dream sequences. Uh, being dream sequences, we felt a lot of liberty to use flashes of imagery that were helpful to the narrative, but also in some ways prophetic. And it provided necessary information for our characters. So um, the example I'm going to show you is our nightmare sequence, which we've actually released today on Book of Trespasses, uh, at Book of Trespasses. It's also on Vimeo, so uh, if you can't see the screen, you can just totally whip out your phone right now. You can go to Vimeo, Book of Trespasses, and teaser number two, and it will be there. But uh, we're definitely very proud of this scene, and uh, even though it's brief, I think it really tells the tale. that movie. It looks so good. There's Nine Miles logo too. Alright, I'm going to stop it before it plays again. 
but, but it, was uh, so good. it was so good. I could just watch it again and again and again and share it with everyone I know. <laughs> um, yeah, no, please do actually, you know, visit our, visit our Facebook, visit our Vimeo, and please share it with your friends because uh, artists, artists need your support and uh, we are so grateful for it when it comes around. So if you've got the time or the inclination, We'd very much appreciate that. In the same way we'd appreciate everybody coming out to the movie on, I believe it's October 27th, is yeah, that, that right? Sounds right? That sounds right. Yeah, and uh, there's three showings. There's every time slot available, so if you decide to go to the bar first or go to the bar afterwards, both of those options remain open for you. So, you know, make it a priority for yourself on October 27th. Anyway, um, I don't really have much else. Sadly, I, I could go on and on, but I don't really want to. Um, that's a little bit about the film you edit uh, and how it's evolved from the film you write and from the film you shoot. And each phase is as important as the last in making a movie that tells the story you want to tell, establishes the pace that you want to tell it at, and delivers the emotional impact you want it to have. So please come and see our movie, because I think it's pretty awesome and you should see it. That's all, thanks. So there it was. That was our promotional talk series that we gave to promote Book of Trespasses in Saskatoon. And now here is a bittersweet epilogue. Unfortunately, despite trying to blanket locally the uh, city with uh, as much information and advertising as we could, the screening on October 27th was terribly unattended, uh, underattended anyway. It wasn't unattended, it was just not, not the audience that we'd hoped. We had sponsors, we had, uh, you know, a silent auction. We were selling t-shirts and mugs and doing everything we can to make this a fundraiser to help get this film out into the festivals. And unfortunately, I don't know if it was because we're competing with Halloween or just because it's hard to get people out to theater these days, um, it, it wasn't a very successful fundraiser, alas. But we're still moving forward, we're still going on to the festival season, and just as a little bit of a good news on top of that disappointing news, the Saskatchewan Independent Film Festival in Regina nominated Book of Trespasses for Best Picture and Best Actor for my star, Matthew Burgess. So, in the end, we got some good news and we got some bad news. This is the continuing saga of me getting Book of Trespasses out there. And, uh... The saga continues. I hope you found that interesting. I hope you're interested to hear more about Book of Trespasses because uh, it's going to be hitting festivals this year, 2019. And as soon as I can make uh, the movie available to you, I will definitely let you know. In the interim, thank you so much for listening to Rank and Review. I know this was a different kind of episode. And please tell a friend about the podcast. And please tell a friend about Book of Trespasses. It's on its way. And it's been a long journey.